Well, everybody, welcome. Say hi, James. Hey! We have an announcement to make. This do is our... Wait, what? What? Do we? We do. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first drunk episode, And the funny thing is, to do a drunk episode, we ask $20 uh, from our patrons. Right. Uh, and, well, we recorded the episode drunk before we got the donations because we're moral reprobates. Yeah. <laughs> but... I would like to take, well, we would like to take this opportunity to say thank you personally to the man who did donate the $20, and his name is Cato, and... Cato Tomato. Yeah, Cato Tomato. But we'd also like to say thank you to Avocado Slammendorf, who donated $10 to the podcast, and we want to give a thanks to, uh, to uh, Sit Psychopath. For donating two dollars and Reed Rankin for two dollars. Wow. Yeah. You know, I gotta say, this is really lame how we're thanking them. Yeah. But it is late and we do have neighbors. Yeah. So we can't really freak out. No. And but I think we should. We should for freak. them later. <laughs> later, not today. Okay, not today. But at another time. Well, right now, I'll, I'll admit I've had a couple of glasses of wine and I probably sound like I have. Yeah. But I'm a little sleepy. I just finished editing this episode and well, there you go. But anyway, thanks to our patrons. You guys are the best. You're literally keeping the dream alive. We would do this forever if we could. But right now, we're penniless. <laughs> you sound like you're gonna die. <laughs> we're, actually, we're very thankful and happy. I'm just sleepy. <laughs> Aaron is sleepy and had a few glasses of wine. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Roll the episode. Aaron, whatever is the matter? What? What are you talking about? Well, your, your eyeliner is running. Have you been crying? No. Come on, man. It's okay to have feelings. Now just tell me what's really going on. Well, for so long, for so long, I've wanted to do a drunk episode, and mm. and nobody has donated enough on Patreon for us to do one. It's just those two glorious atoms, blessed be they. I see. Well. Maybe we should just lower the donation amount for the drunk episode? Oh, no, I've thought about that. That would require effort. I would literally have to go change the donation numbers. That's mm. just too much to do. Yeah, you're right. I'm so sad! Look, look, why don't we just... just do it anyway? You mean... do a drunk episode For free? Yeah, yeah, just to give back a little. They've been so good to us already, sharing our show on Twitter with their friends, listening to every episode and not hating it. We should do this. Just for them. Just for them? Just for them. Well, I guess we could. I mean, wait. Y yeah, this is a great idea. Shot! S-H-O-T-S shots! So, uh, uh, here in Tiff... Are you okay? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, here's the thing. I've heard other podcasts do drunk episodes, and I know they don't sound as drunk as we do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. We're outdoing them on every front. Yep. Oh, 
Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. This is a terrible idea. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? We have Russians! Two Russians! Two whole Russians! Hooray! More Soviets! Well, actually, not this time. Aw, oh, darn. I love talking about Soviets. It, well, it was a big part of Russian history, but more has happened in Russia than just communism. Great to hear! Shall we head down to the history lab? With all haste. Woman, a world of adventure, also known as Russia. Helena Blavatsky and Alexander Nevsky. Blavatsky, a spiritualist and medium who invented a religion that would have dire consequences a century later. Nevsky, the coolest man to ever walk in Russia and patron saint of soldiers. Head to head, Blavatsky and Nevsky battle to become two of the most interesting people on this podcast so far. If you had to pick one country to... Russia. A really interesting choice. But, well, what was the question? Uh, what country would you pick to be the target of a curse that turns everyone into Pikachu? Oh, oh, no, no, no. I don't want that to happen to Russia. I would have picked the Church of Scientology. That's not a country. Uh, that depends on how you define country. Speaking of countries, are we doing a drinking game with this episode, or are we just gonna get wasted? We are going to take a shot at every headline. So, early life, adult life, and end in death. Uh, we're also going to individually take a drink of a less alcoholic, but still alcoholic beverage every time we flow. And also whenever we feel like it. Sounds good! And listeners, if you would like to join us, please do so with water. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably at work. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Uh, If you have a job, unlike us. (laughs) Computer, please bring up Helena Blavatsky and Alexander Nevsky. Affirmative, my lord. So, Aaron... Uh, what was Helena Blavatsky best known for? Helena Blavatsky was best known for inventing the religion known as Theosophy. I've never heard of that. Yup. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, what did she look like? Uh, kind of an interesting looking lady. Her eyes are absolutely piercing, which it seems like is a good th- Oh, fuck. <gasps> a drink! The first drink of the night! Ugh. <sighs> Her eyes are absolutely piercing. Which seems like a good trait for a psychic to have. Hmm. She's got brown hair. That wasn't a flub. I just That's not the word I wanted to use. Okay. She's got brown hair, which she keeps neatly styled up, sometimes underneath an exotic shawl. She wears a lot of rings because she got married so many times. Not true. So she just had a lot of rings? She did get married a lot, but she also had a lot of rings. And also, everyone else... That ever described her basically said she was the grossest person oh, they'd God. ever met. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about uh, Alexander ne- Nevsky. What was he best known uh, for? Alexander Nevsky is best known for defending the Russian city of Novgorod from multiple invaders, landing the first manned mission to Saturn, what? and becoming a saint in the Russian Orthodox Church. Okay. <laughs> and uh, what did he look like? Well, we actually have a description of Alexander Nevsky from a book written about his time. The book is entitled Tales of the Life and Courage of the Pious and Great Prince Alexander. 
and it says the following about his appearance. He was taller than others, and his voice reached the people as a trumpet, <laughs> and his face was like the face of Joseph, whom the Egyptian pharaoh placed as next to the king after him of Egypt. His power was a part of the power of Samson, oh. and God gave him the wisdom of Solomon. This Prince Alexander, he used to defeat, but was never defeated. Wow! That's pretty epic, I will say. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I haven't used the word epic since high school. Yeah, true. 2008. <laughs> so I say we just roll right over into Blavatsky's early life. You know what that means, though. Yes, I do know what that means. That means we need to pour shots. Okay, well, we'll pause. <laughs> okay, well, we have poured the shots. Yes. We and are. we are drinking vodka in we the spirit are. of Russia. Uh, just for you, Russia. All right. Here we go. Oh, damn, that's good water. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That one sat wrong. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Uh, we are recording at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday. <laughs> um, oh, my not God. Not the greatest idea. No, we're going to be fine. Okay, we're, we're going to so, be fine. Okay. Blavatsky's early life. Blavatsky's early life. Helena Blavatsky was born in 1831, and you know I fucked myself over because <laughs> that's so many Russian names. Yeah, you know what? We won't count pronunciation. Okay, let that slide. It's she was born in 1831 in Yekaterinoslav, oh, Ukraine. But wait, I thought she was Russian. Yeah, she is. Ukraine at this time was part of the Russian Empire. Ah. So there you go, still Russian. Also, yes. caveat, nearly everything I'm going to tell you about her life is probably not true. Oh, You oh. see, Blavatsky made a lot of shit up, and oh. so did her family. Don't know why, but they did. As such, it's difficult to pin down exactly how she spent her early life. We have guesses, though, so here we go. Okay. Allegedly, Blavatsky was baptized into the Russian Orthodox Church right after being born. This was done because Yekaterinoslav was at her birth dealing with a major cholera epidemic and people were just dying all over the place. Uh, so, okay. So that didn't count as a flub. No. It really didn't. It was just bad. Bad recording. You're just a bad writer. So it, <laughs> so it makes sense uh, to get this kid baptized so she'll go to heaven if she gets cholera, which, you know, she does and survives, oh. Oh, which is okay. kind of amazing, yeah. really. Um now, Blavatsky's family is kind of important. Hmm. They're aristocrats related to royalty in that Blavatsky's mother, also named Helena, was the daughter of a woman named Princess Yelena Pavlovna Dolgorukia and, Dolgorukia and a colonel in the Royal Horse Artillery named Pyotr Alexeyevich. Alexeyevich. <laughs> I'm fucked. Interestingly enough, when Helena Blavatsky was born, her father was putting down the November Uprising in Poland and didn't see her until she was six years old. Oh, jeez, yeah. that's sad. In fact, Pyotr's career made life a bit unstable for the Blavatskys. Oh. They had to move a lot, which put a lot of pressure on the family. Um, and actually, it's a behavior she would repeat into adulthood. You will see. Okay. Um, to make matters worse, the family lost a son to sickness during one of these moves, and eventually Blavatsky's mom took Helena Jr. to Odessa. In 1835, when Helena was four, they moved in with young Helena's grandfather. Okay. Soon after, Blavatsky had a new sister, Vera Petrovna, who would grow up to write children's stories. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Meanwhile, Pyotr, Pyotr, I guess, uh, Helena, I've never had to say the name before. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Pyotr, ha Helena's father, has been stationed in St. Petersburg. Hmm. A year after moving to Odessa, big Helena and little Helena, Helena, 
God, that's a drink. Oh, that's a fu- wait. That was pronunciation. Does that? I count? don't know. No, don't. I'm yeah, not. Gonna, I, I'm not gonna. Our listeners are gonna be so mad. <laughs> you pussies aren't drinking enough. <laughs> We're already pussies. We're drinking Mark's hard lemonade. (laughs) And Uh, vodka. Anyway. A year after moving to Odessa, Big Helena and Little Helena joined him and the family was back together again. Good. But only for a little while. A year later, Pyotr was back in the field and his family stayed in St. Petersburg. It's about this time in 1837 that Pyotr made trusty, was made trusty, (laughs) goddammit, for the Kalmyk people of Central Asia, which is a population known for practicing Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. This is going to come up later. Now I'm going to drink, okay? Drink. Good. Oh, it's good for. So, what happened when Helena was six years old? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, So, at six, Helena Blavatsky had her first real religious experiences outside of Russian Orthodoxy, and that was Buddhism. Yes. Okay. After this, it just gets fucking complicated, and that's gonna be a theme on this one. Uh, The Blavatskys, like I said, move a lot. Little Helena Blavatsky learns to dance and play the piano and gets some training in English. They live in Poland, Odessa, Saratov. It's just ridiculous. Mm. Anyway, Blavatska's mom gets tuberculosis and dies at 28. Oh, oh, God. Yep. So Helena and her two siblings are sent to live with their grandparents in Saratov. Uh, Helena tended to misbehave a lot after her mother's death. I understand. She also didn't like spending time... Uh, around her wealthy home with any of the wealthy boys and girls. Instead, she preferred to hang out with the peasants and play pranks with them. Nice. She was known for being an excellent storyteller and therefore a convincing liar. And that's gonna come that's back. That's gonna come back, yeah. maybe, allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> so, despite all this, she's still got a decent education while living with her grandparents. Uh, she learned French and all the other things you need to know in order to get married to a wealthier, well-known man in the nobility, which is what women were trying to do then. Sure. Um, she also found herself spending a lot of time uh, reading in her grandfather's library and developed a great interest in things like psychic power oh, oh. and the occult. Oh! Yes. It was shortly wow. after this that... Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's basically me this when I was promising. that age. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was shortly after this that she had her first break into a new world of mystery and strangeness. Mm. She began having her first visions. In these visions, she met a mysterious Indian man. That's racist? No. Um, he's from not. India. Uh, which is mysterious. Uh, now, I can't tell you much more about these visions because the sources are all in Russian. <laughs> we don't know Russian. Um, but this is important and will definitely come up later. Nice. She also claimed she was getting involved at this time with astral traveling, uh, which, okay. if you don't know, <laughs> is where you take your soul out of your body and go visit some other place on the planet or not oh. on the planet. You can go anywhere. I know. I've done it. In fact, I'm doing it right now. I am exactly where you think I am. Oh, how do you fit? (laughs) Now, Helena's father thought this was all bullshit. Sure. And there's an interesting story here to be told by me right now. Mm. Uh, Her old dad told her that he wasn't buying it. Mm -hmm. So she devised a test for him. She would go in the other room and he would write a question down on a sheet of paper and she would answer it from the other room. Oh, God. Reluctantly, her father did so and wrote down the question, quote, what was the name of my favorite war horse which I rode during my first Turkish campaign? He wrote oh, further down okay. in parentheses, a Russian word which I'm going to fuck up, but it's bas- it looks like Zaitchik. Yes, uh, so that's the name of his horse. That's the name of the horse. Yeah. Okay, so a few minutes later, Helena's younger sister came in and said that Helena had channeled the word Zaitchik. 
Oh! So he was convinced and sent <laughs> yeah. Helena to work channeling information about the family's genealogy and went all the way back to the Crusades. Sweet. In fact, she had a specific story about an ancestor named Count Rottenstern <laughs> uh, who was nearly assassinated in his tent but was awakened by a chicken which allowed him to fight off his would-be killer. And that's why their name was Han because apparently that's the Russian word for chicken oh, or something okay. like that. Nice. Anyway, it's really weird. Uh, her brother didn't believe her either until she claimed that she could make something immovable with her mind. Uh, okay. So he picked a table. <laughs> she stared at it and he tried to move it but couldn't. He kicked there at it go. so hard, in fact, that the wood cracked but it didn't move. And we have a quote from her brother on this. He says, quote, how strange. Oh, and is that what inspired Stranger Things? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what inspired Stranger Things. I don't know. Uh, well, actually, that is a lot like Stranger Things, isn't it? It kind of is, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so Blavatsky got married at 17 to a guy named Nikifor Vladimirovich Blavatsky. Well done. This is why she is called Helena Blavatsky. Ah. Um, he was a pretty influential kind of guy, being the vice governor of the Erevan province. Mm. Helena claims she liked him because he believed in magic. <laughs> magic the Gathering? No, no, no. Real, oh, magic, real magic, you magic. don't. Okay. At the 11th hour before her wedding, though, she tried to call it off. Um, didn't happen. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> the bubbles in my stomach. So she moves... Uh. Oh, God. So she it, he, she didn't wasn't able to call off the wedding. Yeah. Uh, so she moves into his palace and is miserable oh. in his palace. Uh, she tries to escape a few times, and Nikifor didn't like this. Sure. Uh, he thought a trip to Odessa to see her father might settle her spirits a bit. Spirits? Get it? Because we're drink. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so he sent her with an escort to take this trip to see her father. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. On the way, though, she escaped and bribed a ship captain to take her to Constantinople. So she wants a new life. Yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> here's the thing. No one was with her to verify these claims, and she didn't keep a journal or ah. anything like that. Ah. So basically everything after this point uh, is considered historically questionable, mm. which is the kind of thing we like. But yeah. for now, we're going to leave Blavatsky on her little ship to Constantinople and go on over to Alexander Nevsky's early life, Great. which means... Oh, da, 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 no. da, shots for you, shots for me, shot in the arm. Makes me happy. That's terrible. <laughs> This is terrible. This, this is, is terrible. terrible idea. So, uh, these are generous shots. Yeah, alcohol poisoning is <laughs> not what we're after here. We're, we just want to have a fun time. Yeah. Okay. So, what shall we raise our glasses to this time? Uh, something Russian. This is for the Russians. That's true. Um, to, to all those brave boys. <laughs> Who were charged into the German lines without rifles in their hands. To those brave boys. Wait, wh who was the actor who was in that? Oh, I don't know. It's, who, he played the yeah, Russian. Yeah, Vasily Zaitsev was the character. Oh, there was Ed... What's his name? Ed... Martin Luther. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we're gonna drink to all of them. Oh, God. Mm. Sit, alcohol. Sit, sit. Okay. Dear God. Wait, what was that? What is that guy's name, damn it? He, he played uh, Watson in Sherlock Holmes. Vasily Zaitsev. You're gonna look that up instead of Watson? <laughs> no, Jude Law. Jude Law. Of course it's fucking Jude Law. Yeah. God damn it, Jude Law. Alright. So, so, are we rolling? <laughs> yeah, we are. Alright, so tell us, James, about Alexander Nevsky's early life! Okay, so Alexander... <laughs> 
All right. Alexander Nevsky was born in the Russian town of Paraslavl Zaleski <laughs> in the year. Paraslavl? <laughs> Sorry, go on. Uh, in the year 1221. Uh, and his name is not Alexander Nevsky, it's just Alexander at this point. Okay. Anyway, uh, Alexander's dad was a pretty important guy by the name of Yaroslav II. Okay. And Yaroslav did a bunch of killy things, and also some <laughs> diplomatic things. And by about the time his son Alexander was born, Yaroslav had become the Grand Prince of the cities of Paraslavl, Zaleski, <laughs> Kiev, and Novgorod. Oh my god. So, so, <laughs> Paraslavl, sorry. It's really funny. Yeah, it is. Okay. So this guy's pretty important. Right, uh, right. And things are actually <laughs> looking good for our boy Alexander. Uh, but they're actually not looking good for him, oh. and here's why. Okay. There are some problems. Actually, there are a ton of problems. Okay. Enumerate these problems, if you will. Number one, Alexander is actually the second eldest son of Yaroslav, which means that his older brother is going to inherit the kingdom and not him. Ah. Number two, this means that Alexander gets all the shitty jobs while his older brother gets the good ones. And what kind of shitty jobs are these? Uh, <laughs> these. Wait, what are they? Uh, number three, Novgorod. <laughs> uh, so Novgorod was a vast and mighty trade republic city-state near the Baltic Sea. I don't believe you. <laughs> okay, well, um... <laughs> Just kidding, go on. Uh, anyway, Alexander's dad had subdued Novgorod, but the nobles of the city didn't like that uh, because they were not totally free, you know? Makes sense. Right. So Yaroslav sent his second son, Alexander, who was only 15 years old at the time, to be prince of Novgorod in his father's absence. Right. Is this our... Is this our... This like is our Alexander. Okay, he's okay. 15, and he's ruling Novgorod uh, while his dad is gone. Great. So this sounds good, uh, but it's not good. So, another... <laughs> another <laughs> You're so boring! <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Number four. <laughs> Catholics. Catholics aren't happy. Why aren't the Catholics happy? Well, remember that at this time, most of Russia is Russian Orthodox Christian, not Roman Catholic Christian. And the Roman Catholics don't like this. Right. In fact, the Catholics want to make all of Russia Catholic, starting with Novgorod. Right. The Swedes, the Danes, the Germans, and the dreaded Crusader Order known as the Teutonic Knights are all looking at Novgorod with greedy eyes. Uh-oh! Problem number five. <laughs> all right. Problem number five. Pagans. Pagans, Pagans are aren't a problem. Happy. Yeah. So most of Lithuania and much of Estonia at this point in time were still pagan lands that had successfully resisted Christianity. And these pagans live really close to Novgorod and aren't too keen on being neighbors with powerful Orthodox Christians. Well, of course not. And speaking of angry pagans, it's almost time for... Uh, oh, wait. It is time for... Oh, it's time what? for the Mongol invasion! Oh, <laughs> hmm. uh, yes. Okay. So number... <laughs> problem number six. Okay. The year is 1237, and the Mongols are just sweeping over the steppes of Russia and killing anybody who resists them. Like you do. And they're getting dangerously close to Novgorod, where our boy Alexander is trying to rule. Okay. So to recap. Right. The year is 1237, and Alexander is about 16 years old at this point in time. He is the prince of Novgorod, but the nobles of the city don't like him. Furthermore, Alexander has no allies. His dad is too far away, and all of his immediate neighbors are hostile pagans. Classic. And maybe this would be okay if Alexander's city was not at risk of being invaded, but being invaded, it was about to be. Oh, no! Uh, the countless Mongol warriors are only miles away from Novgorod no! and approaching really, really fast. Oh, no! 
Further, Catholic Swedes, Danes, and the Teutonic Order are about to launch invasions against Alexander in order to convert Novgorod to Catholicism. By force! Oh, and to make matters worse, no. Alexander does not have many troops under his command. Uh, maybe just a couple dozen personal bodyguards and a few thousand shitty militia troops. <laughs> So things look mighty promising, and I guess that's where we will leave Alexander for now. Oh, uh, I'm not ready for another shot. Can we hang with Alexander for a little longer? Uh, sure. So Alexander invented the Pop-Tart, <laughs> uh, and I don't know. Oh my no, god. it's time for another shot. It is. Should we take a quick break, though? Yeah, I think we should take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about Helena Blavatsky's and, adult life. And drinking another shot. That's true. We'll be doing that, too. But mainly podcasting. Hopefully. <laughs> Welcome back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Alexander's early life. And now we're going to be talking about Helena Blavatsky's adult life. And you know what that means. One more huh. shot for us. Can you make the toast this time? I will make the toast this time. To something Russian? Of course. Oh. Uh, to, uh, I'll make it. To Putin and his soldiers secretly fighting in the Ukraine. What? <laughs> We can't drink we to can't that. Drink that. I was gonna say, um, um, um. Oh, to giving us the PPSH forty-one, which is the best weapon in any Call of Duty game. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And zombies kicks yeah. ass. Cheers. Cheers. And you know what? Fuck Call of Duty. It's a <laughs> shitty game. Or right, I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm here. All right. Mm. Okay. Woo! Helena <laughs> Helena 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 Hel Helena Blavatsky's adult life. Yeah. Now, when we left Helena Blavatsky, she was on a ship to Constantinople about to do some things that are to be thoroughly scrutinized by real historians and not us. Yes. A reminder, she had no one with her to corroborate her accounts about what happened after this point. Yeah. So, since we know all of this may be pure rubbish, let's dive right in like the unqualified idiots we are. The drunk idiots at that. <laughs> well, not quite drunk yet. But. Oh, I'm getting there. I've had three shots in 30 minutes, man. Less than that. Less than that. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. okay. Well, good stuff. That shows you. All right. <laughs> so, Helena arrives in Constantinople and saves a man from being murdered. Oh, good. Uh, and yes, that's all the detail I can find. The source <laughs> is in Russian. Uh, ah. This man happened to be a Hungarian opera singer called Agardi Metrovich. Metrovich is not his real name. Okay. Um, but it's possible they were lovers. Well, he's a singer, metronome, Metrovich. Shut the it fuck up. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> You're misleading our listeners. You're so aggressive. Uh, I get I get aggressive when I'm drunk. Ah, uh, yes. Just ask my ex-wife. <laughs> oh, God. That one just came out. I've never okay. been married. <laughs> okay. Except so, to Jesus. Except to Jesus. So, from Constantinople, uh, Helena Blavag... Can you mark that? Yeah. I forgot her last name. Uh, from Constantinople, she went to Cairo and visited a magician named Paulos Metamon, mm -hmm. which is a Pokemon, uh, yeah. and then it was on to England, oh. where she went out for a walk only to suddenly run across the mysterious Indian man from her visions in the flesh. Oh. Oh. He, was talking <laughs> he was talking with some Indian princes in the streets of London. Their eyes met, and she started toward him, but he held up his hand for her to stop. She did, and he left. Weird. The next day, she went to the park. While walking, she saw him approaching her. Uh, uh, before she even had any time to say anything, he told her that his name was Maria. Oh, okay. <laughs> Moria, Moria. I think it's... I want to say it's Maria, but so, it's probably Moria. How do you... 
the Mines of Moria? The Mines of Moria. Got it. Yeah, it's M O R Y A. Okay. <laughs> so this, so this Moria mm-hmm. uh, said he had come uh, to London with the princes on an important mission. Hmm. He wanted to meet her personally to tell her some very strange things. Uh, first, he told her that he uh, she was to start a religion called the Theosophical Society. Hmm. Then he told her she was about to go through some serious shit, but first she had to go to Tibet. Oh, to Tibet. To Tibet. So she decided to go on this mission. And remember, this is all according to the Blavatsky family and Blavatsky herself. And literally no one else encountered this shit. Uh, yeah, okay. So she's the only one saying this. Right, right. Got and I, now I'm saying Blavatsky. That shows you how drunk I am. Mm-hmm. I gotta slow the fuck down. No. <laughs> the yeah. route she took to Asia brought her through the Americas, uh, particularly Quebec, where she took a little time to hunt down some Native American shamans and oh. learn from them. Oh, of uh, it didn't work. They oh. just robbed her. Oh, that's so stereotypical. Yeah, and she blamed Christian influences for this bad behavior. Mm. Okay. And that will come up later. Hmm. Uh, then she went to New Orleans, uh, Texas, Mexico, and finally to the West Indies, wow. where she bought passage to Bombay. Hmm. For two years, she worked in India, following instructions that Moria had sent to her, right? Yeah. Uh, which, what the fuck? They can astral project and shit? Can't they just talk with their minds <laughs> yeah. or something? Are they too far away? Is the reception bad? I mean, what the fuck? No cell towers, man. Yeah. Uh, well, that's true. It mm. was the 1800s. Anyway, Moria instructed her to go to Tibet at last, but she was blocked by British officials from doing so. Shit. Uh, but that wasn't going to stop Blavatsky from carrying out her divine mission. Right. Actually, it was. Oh. She got on a ship headed for Europe, got in a shipwreck. Oh, dear. Uh, but finally made it to England. Uh, unfortunately for her, she was going to have a hard time making friends. At this time in 1854, Britain and Russia were at war. Was that the Crimean War? Yes, I it, think was. it was. Yeah. So obviously she's not going to be the most popular of people. Right. No, sir. Right. So she sails to New York City, traveled around the U.S. for a while, somehow made it to Japan, and oh. went back to India to try to get into Tibet again. Yeah. Uh, she got in this time, uh, joined forces with a Tartar shaman, got oh. lost, and went back to India. <laughs> Divine mission in Tibet? I guess not. Uh, back yeah. in Europe, it's 1858. Just in Europe, nowhere else. Okay. okay. So she's been traveling <laughs> for 10 years, and now it's time to go home. She went to, Pes- I think it's Piskov? Oh, wait. Wait, 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 that's in my story, too. Really? It's Skov. Skov? Yeah. Wow. Or Scav. Skov. Skov. I think it's Skov. Skov. That's funny. Okay, so Skov, uh, where she joined her sister to visit their grandmother in Tiflis. Uh, Syphilis? No. (laughs) Fucker, it's not World War II. So, uh, uh, here in Tif... Are you okay? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, uh, here's the thing. I've heard other podcasts do drunk episodes, and I know they don't sound as drunk as we do. <laughs> Which is great. We're outdoing them on every front. Yep. <laughs> okay, so Helena is going to Tiflis to visit her grandmother. Uh, right. Here, she met up with that Hungarian opera singer, Mepcevich. Remember mm-hmm. him? Why? I don't know. Yeah, she's the guy... Or he's the guy she saved in Constantinople, right? Yeah, she's the guy he saved in Constantinople. <laughs> right. So then she went back to her husband, Nick Four, and the two made up, which, like, okay, whatever. And then they adopted a kid in 1862, but he died at five oh, years God. old. 1864, Blavatsky fell off her horse oh. and managed to get stuck in a coma for several months. Cool. She recovered, and when she woke, she claimed she had reached her full power. So, like, what now? 
On to Italy, oh. Transylvania, oh. Serbia, <laughs> the Balkans, Hungary, <laughs> Italy again, where she claims she was wounded in the Battle of Mentana. Oh, dear. Yeah. Which, so she's all over the place. Yeah. And real quick, when she says she reached her full power, is that spiritual power? Yes, her full spiritual psychic power. Jeez. Right. Um, which is kind of funny because later on she develops even more. So it was ah. really her full power. Anyway. Okay. On these trips, she made a point of visiting magic people and psychics and things like that. Ah. This immediately makes me think of L. Ron Hubbard mm. and his claims that he met with shamans and wise men of all nations and that kind of thing. Well, at least she didn't bomb Mexico. That's right, he did bomb <laughs> he did Mexico. Bomb Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it sounds so ridiculous and archaic and frankly stupid, mm -hmm. but it also makes me think of the pull these kinds of stories have. Like if How you, so? Okay, so if you tell someone you've been all over the world and met all kinds of people who are involved with magic and you come away saying that they all have something in common and this is it, you're appealing to the human amnesia about prehistory? Ah, yeah. There's something mysterious down there, something ancient and cryptic. It's yeah. like if I tell you I'm an archaeologist and I've spent years on the bottom of the ocean in a submarine checking out all of the places that might hold the remains of Atlantis and they're all right! There are actually dozens of Atlantises, and they're hmm. all actually connected. You go, well, that's great. Show me the evidence. And I say, I am the evidence. Oh. If you don't believe me, whatever. But if you believe me, if you give me one inch and say, maybe he's telling the truth, suddenly you count on me rather strongly. You'll yeah. defend me, too, because your belief is dependent on your trust in me. Mm. If anyone can show you I'm untrustworthy, it's a very hard thing to say, ah, I was wrong about him. Accept the shame. It's far easier to say, oh, these people are just haters. Cults, man. Cults. Yeah. 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 Anyway, Helena Blavatsky claims that she received a message from Moria that it's time to go back to Tibet again. So this is the third time. Okay, yeah. So he meets her in Constantinople. Snoople. <laughs> he meets her in Constantinople and the two travel through Turkey, Persia, Afghanistan, and India, finally reaching Tibet in 1868. Wow. They stayed with Moria's friend, Master Koot Humi. <laughs> Blavatsky claims that Koot and Moria taught her an unknown language called Senzar mm. and put her to work translating ancient texts written in this cryptic script. Cryptic script. Cryptic script. <laughs> she was also trained to control her psychic abilities and she learned new ones, including clairvoyance, clairaudience, which is just like hearing things from another... From anywhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. Telepathy and mind control. Jeez. She apparently learned to create a duplicate of oh, herself God. and also make items vanish and reappear. Clone Wars was the best Star Wars. <laughs> What? What? <laughs> Sorry. She said duplicate herself. Anyway. Uh, wait, wait. Oh, God damn it. Just because it's clones? I don't know. Oh, my God. Okay. So, in 1870, Blavatsky left Tibet. Good idea. And now her mission parameters have changed. She had to tell the world that the spiritualists and the psychics were telling the truth about talking with spirits. She got on a ship bound for Egypt, which exploded, and made her oh, way to... Oh, Yeah, she was one among, like, 16 survivors. The oh. ship fucking exploded. And that's real. That yeah, actually, that actually happened. Oh, God. She made her way to Cairo on an exploding ship. <laughs> so in Cairo, she met up with some more spiritualists to try and start a society, but gave up after two weeks because she became convinced they were all frauds. Yeah. So she goes to Syria to meet up with some more <laughs> magic folk and instead meets a writer named Lydia Peshkova, 
who became an independent source of verification about uh, what Blavatsky was doing. So right th- right for the first time, we've got somebody else who's saying, okay, Blavatsky's healing the truth. Yeah. So this period is actually a little less controversial because nothing fucking happened. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so Lydia goes away, and in 1872, Blavatsky heads back to Odessa to visit her family, then went on to Bucharest and Paris, mm. where she got a message from Moria, who told her to go to the United States again. Man, this guy's just sending her all over the place. I know, and yeah. pretty much nobody knows if he exists or not. Ah! Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like, she went to Manhattan, and she was doing so poorly that she had to get a job sewing and designing advertisement uh. postcards. Yeah. She was not doing great. Then some reporter found her and interviewed her. It was the first time Blavatsky claimed to have spent time in Tibet publicly. She finally made it. So from, yeah, like a historical perspective, this is the first time we can confirm that she claimed she went to Tibet. Wow. Um, Then her dad died and she inherited a ton of money, which, lucky for her, sad for her also. Yeah. Uh, But she used it uh, to house herself in a luxury hotel. Hmm. In 1874, she met a Georgian, not that Georgia, the other one. The country Georgia? The country Georgia. The country Georgia. Named Mikhail uh, Bettinelli, who absolutely fell head over heels for her for some reason. Um, He asked her to marry him so much and she refused so much that eventually she was like, fine, or, mm, should I do a Russian voice? Of course. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> Final marry you, you prick. That sucks. Final marry you, you yeah. prick. They get married. She refuses to have sex with him. And Bettinelli storms off back to Georgia. Like you do. Yeah. About this time, Blavatsky heard about these dudes named William and Horatio Eddy out in Vermont, who apparently could fly. Oh. So she goes out to see them, and on her way, she meets this reporter named Henry Olcott. Turns out the brothers are frauds, but she still makes off with an excellent contact. Mm. Olcott writes an article about her, which attracts a lot of attention for Blavatsky. Olcott. Also starts learning from Blavatsky, becoming a celibate, teetotaling vegetarian, and the hmm. two eventually move in together. And is she still married at this point? Uh, yes. Okay. So this is technically bigamy. Great. Yeah. So they started this thing called the Miracle Club, uh, which was basically a stage for spiritualists to give lectures. Hmm. In 1875, someone gets a grand idea of changing the name of the Miracle Club to the Se- Theos- Theosophical to the Society. Theosophical Society. Hmm. Theos means gods in Greek, and Sophia means wisdom. Hmm. Uh, It was definitely not a cult. Uh, Blavatsky (laughs) had been working on a book about her theosophical ideas called Isis Unveiled, which essentially... Wait, 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 wait. You said Isis. Yes. You fucking (laughs) (laughs) anti-American. It's... Isis is a goddess. Oh, yeah. Right. (laughs) And she's being unveiled. Hmm. What? Uh, a band. There's a band called Isis? I think it's a metal band. Anyway, yes. Okay, so the book is called Isis Unveiled, uh, which essentially is just about how all uh, all the religions kind of got a little bit right, ah. uh, but Blavatsky has it all right. Sure. And as it happens, the book is a huge success. They sold their first thousand copies in a week. Wow. Theosophy, aided by the, uh, this book's success, started to expand. Uh, there were these things called lodges, which were basically like churches. Yeah. So their lodges started opening all over the world. Uh, Thomas Edison joined. Oh, really? In 18, yes. In 1879, Blavatsky joined her movement with another one in India, the Arya Samaj, which was, a, I think, a some kind of 
Hindu revival movement or something it. like yeah. that. Pardon me if I'm wrong about that. I'm drunk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so like she went to India because she didn't like her life in the United States, hmm. and Edison gave her a phonograph to take with her. Oh, so nice. he really dug theosophy, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So on her way to India, she stopped in London, where she was monitored by British intelligence officers who thought she was working with Russia to besmirch the British Empire's standing as a largely Christian nation. Hmm. When she arrived in Bombay, Blavatsky took a 15-year-old boy named Valabula uh, as a personal servant and immediately set to work making this weirder. Okay. She took Olcott, Babula, and their buddy named Mulji Thackersy to what are called the Karla Caves, oh. though they're not so much caves as they are a religious location carved into solid rock. Mm. Here, Blavatsky claimed there were secret rooms and passages, including one secret room where the masters would meet to talk. Hmm. Now, the masters are hard to explain. Okay. She basically believed in uh, theosophy that there was this ancient religion that people had figured out, you know, millennia ago. Right. Um, and, like, people like Plato and yeah. her <laughs> had it all figured out. Um, and these were the masters, right? There were these sure. men and women across the generations who had figured out this ancient belief system. I've heard this before in other... Yeah. Right. Things. Yeah. Right. And there's some legitimacy to a concept of, like, masters of religion and philosophy. Uh, yeah, right? I get that. So, um, anyway, she claimed uh, there was a secret room where the masters would meet to talk in these caves. Yeah. Um, and she also claimed that she was getting a telepathic message uh, from these so-called mas ma masters to head north. Uh -huh. uh, so they do. And they reached the Yamuna River, where they met Babu Sirtis, who had been sitting there for 30, 52 years. Whoa. Yeah, in the lotus position. Oh, jeez. Um, and then they went back to Bombay. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, there's not much about what they learned from Babu. It's possible he didn't say anything at all. I okay. Mean, been sitting there for 52 years. Right. Anyway, so Blavatsky and Olcott started making a monthly magazine called The Theosophist. It was a hugely popular magazine thanks to her book. Uh, there's like a lot of little things here. They became Buddhists, apparently the first from the United States to do so. Huh. She was invited to Simla, where she made things vanish and reappear before the public eye. She bought a bungalow in a suburb called Breach Candy. Don't ask. I won't. That's about it for now. <laughs> so this Russian bitch is just oh my God. traveling all over the world, and she's got a spiritual connection because yes. she's like Plato, and that she's one of the few who's reached full potential right. or whatever. And now she has this religion called Theosophy. 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 And she's the leader of it right now? Yes. Okay. Cool. Makes sense. Okay. So we're going into Alexander Nevsky's adult life. Yeah, I think we should take a break. I think we need to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about Alexander Nevsky's adult life. Yay! Yay! <laughs> we are rolling. Okay. And we are back to the drunkisode of We Talk About Dead People. Our first drunkisode, which sounds like a dinosaur, I will say. Drunkisode. <laughs> Yeah. Kind of. They, they roamed these lands of podcasting millions of years ago. Uh, anyway, we're going to drink to something Russian again. Mm. Uh, what's it going to be? Should we drink to Alexander Nevsky? Uh, I was thinking pumpernickel bread, but how about both? Let, to Alexander Nevsky and pumpernickel bread. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh my right. god. Okay. What? <laughs> no, what? it's, it's 6.50 on a Wednesday night? Yes. 
we're so immature. Okay, so let's move into Alexander Nevsky's adult life. Right. And if you remember, I read all those problematic problems early on. <laughs> yeah. Alexander Nevsky. Right. So, so we left him in a bit of a pickle. Yeah, we left okay. Alexander in a bit of a pickle. You wrote a bit of a pickle. <laughs> you wrote this sober, too. <laughs> Okay, so he's in a bit of a pickle. The year is 1237, and Nevsky is alone as Prince of Novgorod. Okay. The nobles in the city don't like him, the Mongols are getting really close to the city, and the Swedes, Danes, and Teutonic Order Knights are all looking to take Novgorod for themselves. Yeah. So Alexander is pretty much totally fucked. Yep. Yeah. He's got approaching enemies on all sides, and doesn't even uh, have close to the manpower he needs to fight back. Okay. But here's the thing. Alexander knows this. Oh! He decides to look at the multiple threats as just that. Multiple threats, but separate threats. That's smart. Yeah, thus Alexander decides to deal with each threat one at a time. The first biggest threat is the Mongols. That does not surprise me. Yeah. Uh, now, the Mongol invasions are, in my opinion, one of the most overlooked periods in history. Okay. The Mongols formed the second largest empire the world had ever, has ever seen, and a lot of times I, I see this just being glanced over. Well, that's just too bad. It right? is. Uh, but these invasions were really, really bad for a lot of people. And we have covered the Mongols a little here and a, and a little there in previous podcasts. I know we talked about them in the, our episode on Timur the Lame, but let me just say that the Mongols devastated much of Russia, Poland, and Hungary. Oh, God. Uh, as well as many other places, but since we're talking about Europe here, I just said Russia, Poland, and Hungary. <laughs> and my stomach is... Okay. Uh... <laughs> Let me just say that the Mongols devastated much of Russia, Poland, and Hungary, as well as many other places, but since we're talking about Europe here, we'll just leave it at that. So, they're the only world power that has ever successfully conquered Russia, oh. which is interesting, and the empire only ever fell apart from inner political struggles, rather than being conquered by outsiders. Interesting. So, the Mongols are a really formidable threat. Right. And the Russians knew this at the time, for the most part. Okay. So, when the Mongols attacked the city of Kiev, the city refused to surrender. Good for them! And, well, hmm. <laughs> oh, no. As a result, the Mongols burnt the city to the ground and killed 48,000 oh. of the 50,000 inhabitants. Oh my god! So the Mongols aren't messing around. They're here to conquer and there's literally nobody who can stop them at this point in time. Except for Jesus! Well? Well, not really. No. Because they're kind of pagan. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So back to our boy Alexander. He knows that his city doesn't stand a chance against the Mongol hordes. So instead of fighting them, Alexander decides to submit to the Mongols. Possibly a smart move. Yeah, very possibly. In yeah. fact, definitely. Uh, thus, Novgorod is no longer a free city. It now has to pay regular taxes to the Mongols. Okay. But what this means is that Novgorod lives to see another day. Good. And actually, Alexander visited the Mongols himself and made an arrangement that excused Novgorod from having to send troops to fight for the Mongols. Well, that's good. All they had to do was send some money. Right. Uh, so now the Mongols are off of Alexander's back, and he's able to look at the next invaders. All right. And the next invaders are the Catholics. Yay! So the nearby <laughs> Catholic powers wanting to subdue Novgorod decided on a three-pronged attack. Oh. Which is kind of funny. Yes. Because Hitler's three-pronged attack to Russia during Operation Barbarossa ended not so well for the Germans. Mm -mm, he he should have learned. He should have learned. Yeah, just don't attack and they Russia. Should have, they should have learned from him. They should have looked to the <laughs> <Right>. future. <laughs> uh, 900 years in the future, or 800 years, yes. 
Uh, anyway, the Catholics decided that the Swedes would attack Novgorod from an uh, amphibious assault on there the of Finland. The Danes would attack through modern-day Estonia. All right. And the Crusader Teutonic Knights would take the city of Skov, which we discussed earlier. Right, right, right. Th that lady was there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the city of Skov was under Novgorod control. Perfect. Uh, this might have been a good plan, but the Swedes decided to attack a full year earlier than the others. Oh. Which a, is bad. A year before. Yeah. Um, um, that seems like a bad decision. Just stick to making furniture, <laughs> shitty furniture. <laughs> oh my um, god. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so in the year 1240, a Swedish army landed on the Russian coast near the Neva River, or Neva River, either one. Uh, their goal was to take the city of Ladoga and thus cut off Novgorod from important trade routes. Alexander decided the, that the best course of action would be to attack the Swedes before they had time to establish self Establish themselves. On I the think you need land. to take a drink for that. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> Here we go. We've probably missed so many at this point. The listeners are tearing their hair out. <laughs> yeah, they're and, like, "What are you saying? And, this is in English." And they're also like super drunk. <laughs> Our listeners are drunk. No, because they because they've been drinking for every time we've. I thought they're drinking water though. They're just oh, hydrated. You're right. They're not drunk at all. Yeah. Yeah. Drink water, everybody. Anyway, <laughs> so the Swedes have landed. Okay. And Alexander gathered what men he could and attacked the Swedes on the morning of July 15th, 1240. The Swedes were completely unprepared and taken by surprise and were massacred as they tried to retreat to their ships. Okay. Uh, it was a complete victory for Novgorod. Which is good. Yeah, it's uh, it's our story. Right. Uh, and for his success in battle, Alexander was given the title of Nevsky, which means of the Neva River. Wait, if it's pronounced Nevsky, wouldn't it be Neva? Probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alexander right. Nevsky of the Neva, Neva River. Anyway. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Now, interesting to note, this battle may never have taken place. Oh! Uh, the only accounts of it are from Novgorod. There are no Swedish or Teutonic records of it, so oh. there is some doubt about its historicity, but from what I could gather, it seems most scholars accept that the battle did occur. Well, I wonder, did the Swedes leave Russia after this? Uh, kind of. They were fighting in a war against Norway at the time. Oh. So that's why a lot of people are like, well, if you're fighting Norway, why would you send an army to Russia? That's true. Uh, but, uh, I don't remember the reasons. A lot of historians do believe in the battle. And the Swedes do stay in the picture for a while after, and they try and take over Finland, which they eventually do. Got it. Uh, anyway. So... Now that our dude Alexander Nevsky has dealt with both the Mongol and Swedish threats, he is not out of the woods yet. Of course not. Because the Danes and the Teutonic Crusaders are still planning an invasion against Novgorod. Oh no! Worse yet, turns out a lot of the nobles of Novgorod are really unhappy with Alexander. What?! Now, I couldn't find anything about this quarrel between Alexander and the Novgorodian nobles. The primary source that I use, the Chronicle of Novgorod, just says that they had a big fight. And Alexander was forced to leave the city with his family because the nobles were mad at him. Oh. So I'm guessing it was about football. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Uh, this turned out to be a big mistake for the nobles because the Danes and the Teutonic Order were on their way. In 1241, the Danes began raiding land that belonged to Novgorod and were greatly successful. They made it within 19 miles of Novgorod, uh, so it's not good. Oh, <laughs> Uh, but Jesus. Then, then the Novgorod people uh, caught a break because the Danish king back home in Denmark died. Oh! And, and so a lot of Danish troops returned home. Because they is, were so sad. Well, yeah, and power <laughs> struggles, but they were probably sad too. Right. 
And it, uh, a few Danes didn't leave, though, and so they joined with the Teutonic Order army. Uh-oh! So now a combined force of Danish warriors, Teutonic Crusaders, plus some of their local allies was now getting closer and closer to Novgorod. This enemy force managed to capture the strategic city of Skav, which was previous con previously controlled by Novgorod. Uh, I messed up there. I should drink. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. No, you shouldn't drink. <laughs> This is a dumb game. It's very dumb. <laughs> this is a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. At this point, the nobles of Novgorod kind of realize that Alexander Nevsky is their best bet to survive. So they send for him and he agrees to come help them out. Right. I remember this from the movie. Do you? Yes. Oh, and we'll, we'll talk about the movie later. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll get into that. Okay. Now, at this point, it was the middle of the winter of 1242. Warm! Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and temperatures were uh, regularly negative 5 degrees Celsius, or about 23 degrees Fahrenheit in the area. So it's fucking cold. Wait, 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 is it negative 23 Fahrenheit? I don't know conversions. Neither do I. That's what one of my books said, so... That's right. I used books when I booked books. God, books. You caught. I'm looking up a Fahrenheit converter. Okay, good. Either way, God. it is fucking cold in Russia in the winter. Okay, so what was it? Twenty three. Twenty three degrees Fahrenheit. Ah, it is twenty three. I was wrong. Negative five Celsius. Yep. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it's cold either way. Uh, that just doesn't seem that cold. It's been like negative eight around here. Yeah. You need to mark this. Not the tiger, it's the fire. Jesus. All right. <laughs> okay. So So it's cold, right? All right. It's, it's cold. It's fucking cold. Yeah. All right. Uh, as such, the Crusaders and the Danish army have stopped their campaign to make camp and wait it out. Like you do. Yeah. But the winter does not stop Alexander Nevsky. No, of course he, not. Right. He's a Russian. So he gathers the men of Novgorod and his own bodyguards and marches this makeshift army out on the offensive in the winter. Right. So he probably only had about 5,000 guys, which is not that many, mm -hmm. and most of them are not great fighters. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're shitty militia, like you said earlier. Yes. So, uh, but regardless, Alexander managed to retake the city of Skav, and then continued on into Crusader land in order to raid and pillage the countryside. But there was a bit of a problem. Oh no. Alexander had no idea where exactly the enemy army was. Right. So the Novgorodians fan out their army in order to cause as much damage as possible, and this is when the Crusader and Danish forces attack. Uh-oh! Part of Alexander's army is ambushed on a bridge and just gets slaughtered. Uh, however, since Alexander had spread out his forces, most of his army managed to escape, and he led them in a quick retreat back to Novgorod. Okay. Now, the Crusaders and Danes wanted blood, so they quickly reorganized and gave chase to Alexander and his army. By early April of 1242, the two armies were getting closer and closer together. Alexander decided to fight the Crusaders, but knew that the battle uh, would have to be on his terms in order to win. Right. Because Alexander's army, uh, they outnumbered his enemy, but that doesn't really matter in medieval warfare, oh, because okay. most of the Danish and Teutonic soldiers were battle-hardened knights in thick armor and on powerful horses. Right. Uh, most of the Russian troops were just militia dudes with shitty armor and shitty weapons and not, not much experience. It's kind of like a person attacking a tank. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, 
Alexander did have some decent troops though. Uh, he did have a thousand horse archers and about 800 Druzina cavalry, which were basically the noblemen of Novgorod, uh, who had enough wealth uh, for decent weaponry and horses. Right. Okay. So he's got a few good troops, he just has to use them well. Anyway, so Alexander marched his army onto probably the coolest setting for a medieval battle ever. He marched his army onto Lake Peipus, which was still frozen over at the time. So they're on a frozen lake. Right, right. Uh, he then set up his battle lines on the far side of the lake where the land met the ice. This gave his soldiers decent footholds and would force the Danes and Crusaders to have to charge on ice. Alexander placed his shitty infantry in the center of his lines and then put his horse archers on the left side and Druzina heavy cavalry on the right side. Ooh. After hours of tense waiting... Hours? Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, because they're being chased at this point, right, remember. Right, right. So after hours of tense waiting, the Russians, the Rus, the Russians, oh my God, the Russians saw the Danes and Teutonic Knights emerge from the trees on the opposite side of the lake, which probably had to be terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if you've seen the movie, it is pretty terrifying. That's true. And we'll get into the movie later. Okay. So the Danes and Teutonic Knights, knowing that they were outnumbered by the Russians, then did what they knew how to do best: charge. So the Catholic horsemen organized themselves in a boar formation, okay. which is basically a giant wedge, okay. uh, which aims to crash into the enemy formations and fragment it into pieces. Okay. Kind of kind of smart. Uh, and this strategy usually worked, especially against ill-prepared infantry, which is the motto of Russian military <laughs> history, ill-prepared infantry. Right. So, yes. Uh, so the Danes and Teutonic Knights begin their charge across the frozen lake, but they run into some problems. Oh, no. The ice obviously makes it really hard for the horses to run, Ooh. so the charge is only going a fraction of its desired speed. <laughs> Uh, further, Alexander ordered his horse archers to ride onto the lake and fire arrows into the midst of the knights. And it was brilliant how this was done. The horse archers were on the right side of the Danish and Teutonic knights. And since most of these knights were right-handed, oh. they held their shield on their left sides, which meant that they had no protection against the arrows that were peppering their right side. Wow, that's smart. Yeah. Uh, but eventually the knights reached the Russian infantry and just smashed it. Oh! Uh, the militia were ill-prepared to fight the knights, and it looked pretty hopeless for the Russians. However, Alexander had planned for this uh, at once, and the Danish and Teutonic... <laughs> what the fuck am I saying? He had planned for this. Yeah. Anyway, so he's planned for this, and so the Danish and Teutonic knights are wrapped up fighting the Russian infantry. Right. It was then that Alexander ordered his Drazina heavy cavalry to charge into the flanks of his enemies, and the result was a complete encirclement of the Danish and Teutonic soldiers, and what followed was what's often called a cauldron of death. Oh! Yeah. The surrounded dudes were just slaughtered, and those who managed to fight their way out of the circle ran for their lives at full speed. Oh my god. Anyway, this battle was a complete victory for Alexander and Novgorod. It occurred on April 5th, 1242, and is known as the Battle of Lake Peipus, or often the Battle on the Ice, which is much more exciting. And is title. the name of the music. Yeah. The soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so there is a really popular opinion that says that the, as the Crusader Knights were retreating, their horses and armor were too heavy and the ice below them broke. Uh, the Crusaders then fell through and were drowned by their heavy armor. Oh. It's really kind of an epic and disturbing picture, 
But it actually probably didn't happen. Oh, okay. So first of all, about 55% of the Crusader force actually survived the battle. Secondly, Lake Peipus is really shallow. Oh! In some places, it's only about 12 inches deep. Wow. Uh, and it's places... And in some places where the water is deeper, the average thickness of the ice is usually about 10 to 20 inches thick, which is thick enough to support a small car. So unless a couple crusaders were thrown off their horses with enough force and were wearing significant armor and fell on a spot of ice that was unreasonably thin, uh, there probably weren't many or any guys who fell through the ice. But of course, I think to myself, the army itself is heavier than a small car. That's true, but they were out of formation at this point, just running. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, I don't know. So no historians thought this ever happened until the film came out oh. in the 30s, which we will get to um, with Alexander's legacy. But anyway, most people don't think that the ice broke, well, even they though should, they did fight on the lake. They should look cool. on the bottom of the lake for artifacts. That's things, true. They should. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so they didn't fall through the ice, probably. Yes, probably right. not. Right. Anyway, the result of the battle is basically that Catholic attempts to capture and convert Novgorod had failed. Uh, the Teutonic Order agreed to a 20-year truce with Novgorod, and Denmark retreated in order to, to deal with rebellions against Danish power in Estonia. Okay. So Alexander had saved the city of Novgorod from several invasions, and the people loved him for it. Of course! So for the next couple of years, Alexander Nevsky ruled as Prince of Novgorod and did what he could to strengthen the city. In 1251, Alexander made a peace treaty with Norway. Uh, In 1256, he crushed the Swedes again because they were meddling around in Finland. Oh. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church then once tried to destroy... The Roman Catholic Church uh, also once tried to destroy Alexander Nevsky by encouraging him to revolt against the Mongols. <laughs> uh, because remember, yeah. Alexander had agreed to submit right. to the Mongols in order to save the city. Right, right. But he knew that this was stupid, though, so he just told the papal diplomats to go fuck themselves. Like you do. Uh, unfortunately, though, Alexander's brother Andre uh, liked this idea and started a revolt against the Mongols. And Alexander was forced to crush his own brother on behalf oh. of the Mongols. And for this, a lot of people give Alexander shit because he was content with being a vassal. But realize here, people, that if Alexander had rebelled against the Mongols, he and his city would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get into more. We'll, we'll get into later why this is important okay. for Russia, R- Russian history. Anyway. Thus, to finish it up, Alexander was a brilliant general because he knew when he could, and he knew when he could not fight. Right. And that is where we will leave him until he dies. That was pretty cool. Uh, That battle is super famous. Can't wait to talk about the film. Yeah, we'll talk about the film, and I'm going to let you talk most about the film, because you're a film guy. Right. Yeah. Do you want to take a break, or do you want to keep going? Hmm. Either way. Uh, uh, let's just go. Okay, let's well, it's time for a shot because so, we're in uh, oh, End and God. Shot, shot, shot. It's time for shots. Give me a glass, you creep. <laughs> Creighton. All right. No, I prefer creep. Thank you. You sound know. really drunk. I am very drunk. <laughs> okay. Are we rolling? Yeah. Okay. Welcome back to We Talk About Dead People's Drunk Episode. <laughs> drunk Episode number one. Drunk Episode number one. Uh, we may never get to another one because I think if James takes another shot, which we're about to do, he'll have alcohol poisoning and die. Mm, and yeah. then it'll just be me on the show and you'll all be bored. Mm, yes. <laughs> I'm the life of the party. That's right. So, uh, new shot to something Russian. Something, Russian. something Russian. 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 
Probably to vodka. What a great contribution. And those little dolls that you fit. The Russian nesting dolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. To Perfect. vodka and Russian nesting dolls. Long may they reign. Ugh. Ugh. Woo! Alright, feeling good. And when we left off, we were talking about Alexander Nevsky's adult life. And now we're going to be talking about Helena Blavatsky's end and death. Yeah! So, when we left Helena Blavatsky, she was living in Breach Candy in a fancy house and raking in followers left and right. It's 1882 and she's moving again! Right, that's all she does. That's all she does. Mm -hmm. The Theosophist bought a, head a headquarters and saved some room for Blavatsky, who promptly moved in. But she's growing older, weaker, and sicker. Hmm. Olcott is gonna go to London soon, so Blavatsky goes with, hoping the trip will do her some good. Uh, and then some political shit happens at Theosophy. Oh, okay. Basically, Blavatsky invited a poor friend to live in one of her rooms at the headquarters in India. Mm -hmm. uh, this friend named Emma... Coulomb, I think it's Coulomb, Coulomb. Uh, was accused of stealing money and was asked to leave. She said no and immediately started blackmailing the society with letters she claimed were written by Blavatsky that proved her psychic abilities were fraudulent. Ooh. The Theosophists refused to pay because they really believed that she was Blavatsky the was the real deal. Right. Yeah. So they, so these uh, blackmailers sent the letters to the Christian College Magazine, which Ooh, is shit. the lamest name for a magazine I can think of. Yeah. Uh, and they published the letters in an expose, uh -huh. and the story just exploded, and the Theosophists began to suffer. Right. At this point, Blavatsky was back in India, but her health was worsening. In 1885, she left again and went to Naples, Italy, living off a pension provided to her by the Theosophists. Mm. She moved to Würzburg. Bavaria. God, she's I everywhere. know, like she doesn't stop no. moving. The same year, a report was published on Blavatsky that accused her of being a spy for the Russian government and also for being a total fraud. Ooh. The report had a very strong effect. A lot of theosophists left the religion. Mm. Um, and how many were there at its height, do we know? I think there were like 10,000 at this point. Jeez. But I'm drunk and my memory's bad, so mm -hmm. don't quote me on that. But there were quite a few. They had two major centers, one in the United States and one in India. The one in India being much bigger. Okay. Um, she moved to Würzburg in Bavaria. Mm -hmm. The same year, a report was published on Blavatsky that accused her of being a spy for the Russian government oh. and for being a total fraud. Yeah. yeah. The report had a pretty strong effect... A lot of theosophists just straight up left, hmm. uh, even going so far as to denounce Blavatsky publicly. Mm. Uh, anyway, she didn't quit till the very end. Um, she started a new theosophist publication called Lucifer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, don't know why. Yeah. Um, the difference between this and magazine and uh, other literature she penned was that this was... Uh, one that had almost nothing to do with the paranormal. Hmm. It was mostly like philosophical shit. Okay. Um, and she was hearing a lot of criticism at this time for her paranormal garbage, and it didn't stop until she caught influenza and died in oh. 1891. Well, that's sudden. <laughs> now, before we close on her, let's talk about some of her beliefs, yeah, shall we? Yeah, finally. First, she hated Jews. <sighs> of course she did. I know, there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, but only, only because she hated Christians. Oh! Mainly because British colonists spread Christianity wherever they went. Mm. She wrote the following quote. 
Judaism, built solely on phallic worship, what? has become one of the latest creeds in Asia, and theologically a religion of hate and malice toward everyone and everything outside themselves. What? Yeah. No, if you read her if you read her writings, they're they're mostly nonsense. I'll just put it that way. I have read a uh, not a lot. What but is a that little. thing about phallic worship? I have no fucking clue. Ah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, this is no different from half the shit I read in my master's program. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, so she also had a lot of problems with Africans, Ugh. Aboriginal Australians, and South Sea Islanders. <laughs> uh, she described them as, quote, the lowest specimens of humanity. Ugh. Now I know what you're thinking. This woman is a racist! Yes. Well, you're fucking right. Yes. But it's worth noting that around this period, scientific racism was a very real thing. Yeah, because it's the 1800s. Right. right. People yeah. were talking about higher and lower orders of animals, and as such, they took the logical yet terrible step into talking about humanity the same way. Right. We could do a whole podcast on scientific racism. <laughs> God, um, unfortunately. I know, which is terrible. I remember hearing about it in history class and being like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Blavatsky was just one of many people saying things like this in the time period. Okay. Uh, in fact, this period of science contains many, many much worse things uh, regarding scientific racism. Uh, eugenics was big back then, uh, as well as racial, racially motivated mass killings. Come on. Based, like, these kinds of things were justified uh, by the people who did them, by the yes. way. Justified by the people who did them as necessary for evolution to progress more quickly. Ugh, Isn't that awful? It like, is. Like, just saying it makes me feel gross. Yeah. But anyway, so it happened a lot. Terrible, terrible shit. I'm sure Darwin hadn't planned on it. Sure. In fact, I seem to remember that he was like... This is going to lead to something uproar about (laughs) this. Um, But anyway, so Blavatsky also believed... Uh, that Stonehenge was created by giants who mated with she animals, which mm. is why we have chimps and gorillas. Oh, that's yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yep. <laughs> wow. And I say she animals. That's a quote. Okay. That's not me. <laughs> that's a quote. Yeah. So I say we just roll right no, over. No, we've got one more shot though. Oh my one god. More shot. All right. I'll pour them. Jesus. They don't have to be liberal. No. Oh, there goes the spoon. No, nothing should be li- James, I'm telling you, the liberals are all communists. Liberals control the media! Control the media! God damn, these people are asleep. Ugh, pour that vodka. Uh, alright. Oh, Jesus. Well, Wake up, people! We have one more Russian thing to... to one more Russian... To the radiation of Chernobyl. <laughs> and I know Chernobyl is in the Ukraine, but when it happened, it was part of the Soviet Union and Russia. So, to the radiation of Chernobyl, uh, and that one mission in Call of Duty 4, which was in Chernobyl, which was the best mission ever. You are way drunker than I am. Uh, to Chernobyl. Ugh. All right, we're rolling. <laughs> And we are back to We Talk About Dead People, and when we left off, we were talking about Helena Blavatsky's end and death, and now we're moving into Alexander Nevsky's end and death, and let's all just give a little cheer right now for James D, in the (laughs) hopes that he can get through this without slurring it so much. (laughs) Okay. Okay, take it away, James. My alcoholic tolerance is shit. Really? That's surprising. I know. I haven't gotten drunk in so long. Uh, Anyway, so... (laughs) 
Let's talk about Alexander Nevsky's end and yeah. See, okay, when I get drunk, I laugh like Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> I laugh at everything. It's like uh, oh, yes. I lean over totally the table. Fake, yeah. When you're drunk, what do you do? I don't know. I haven't been drunk many times. Oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alexander Nevsky's end and death. <laughs> Right, go. So Alexander continued to rule the city of Novgorod as their prince. Yay! Uh, until his under his rule. <laughs> <laughs> under his rule. <laughs> There's only two paragraphs. I know. <laughs> under his rule, the city flourished and became the largest Christian city in the region. It also became basically the capital of the Orthodox Church because Constanti Constantinople had been sacked. In 1204, by right. the Fourth Crusade, uh, Alexander Nevsky was also essentially the first of the Tsarist royalty line. Oh, so that's kind of cool. That is cool. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, after several decades of ruling successfully, Alexander Nevsky died from a sickness in the year 1263, and he was only 42 years old. Well, that's shitty. Yeah. What sickness? Um, the sickness of the lambs. What? <laughs> I don't know. Brilliant improvisation. Anyway, okay. so now, unsurprisingly, Alexander has quite the legacy. Oh uh, yes. He was sainted in the Russian Orthodox Church and is their patron saint of soldiers and the borders of Russia. Oh! Uh, his body was dug up over 100 years later and found to be incorrupt. What? Which basically means that he hadn't decomposed at all. That's considered like a miracle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And some Catholics and Orthodox Christians believe that extra godly people don't decompose when they when they die. Wow. Yeah, uh, but whatever this... Uh, but whether this was true or not, Alexander did eventually decompose, and his remains were transferred to St. <laughs> Petersburg, where they actually still rest. You're so close. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> You're so close. I know. So, <laughs> anyway, more of the legacy. Uh, there are several. There were several Russian imperial and Soviet military decorations named after Alexander Nevsky. There are numerous churches named after him, even a couple of Roman Catholic churches. And there's also a Russian nuclear submarine called the Alexander Nevsky. <laughs> cool. <laughs> are you okay over there? Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. But of course, the most well-known legacy of Alexander Nevsky is the 1938 historical drama propaganda film directed by Sergei Eisenstein. Sergei. Sergei. <laughs> and if you haven't seen this film, go see it. Is that all we're going to say about the film? No. <laughs> oh, I left it open for you. Oh, well, there's, okay. not, there's not really much to so say. So it's a 1938 film about the life of Alexander Nevsky. No, it's with, about the bat, the one war he fought. Well, there's emphasis on the war on the Battle of the it's Ice. It's not about his life. I know, but there's other okay, stuff, too. Okay, I'll tell you something. Go for it. Okay. So, it was the first movie with its own custom-made soundtrack. Oh. By, I think it's Tchaikovsky. Uh, I'm going to sound really stupid if I get that wrong, so let me Google it. Let me see. Well, let's let James I Google it. I'll continue to talk about the movie. Okay. Uh, it was oh, Soviet propaganda, and it was released everywhere, which is amazing because, again, it was propaganda. Um, but if you watch it... Uh, it captures the story almost exactly how it happened. The only thing is, the battle on the ice, again, most historians say that the ice didn't actually break, that right. sort of thing. Um, 
in the movie it does. But the thing you need to be looking for in the movie is the symbolism in basically all of the Crusader scenes. Mm. It's absolutely uh, incredibly effective uh, in dogmatizing and essentially... The threat of the West. The threat of the West. Yeah. Even Christianity. Even though Alexander Nevsky right. was a Christian Orthodox. Catholicism um, is the threat. Right. And so in the movie, they portray the, the Catholics as all Christians, and Alexander Nevsky and his cronies as essentially irreligious communists. Right. Um, and it's one of the most effective pieces of propaganda I've ever seen, and Stalin himself fucking loved the film. Wasn't it his favorite movie? Yeah, it, I think it was his favorite movie. Yeah. What were you going to say about the soundtrack, though? Okay, the soundtrack, the musical score is by Sergei Proko... Prokofiev. Prokofiev. I'm so fucking dumb. Yes. Oh my god. Mm. I'm so dumb. Well, you're drunk, man. Can you mark that? We're going to cut on me being so dumb. All right. So the film is just communist propaganda. It is, but it's really good because Eisenstein did it. So it makes the film like really interesting because it's almost two historical periods put in one. Yes, you've actually. got Alexander Nevsky versus the Crusaders. Yes, and the Soviets versus the Germans, all yes. in one. That's pretty kind, cool. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. It, I mean, it is a great glimpse into what the Soviets were thinking when they were making their propaganda at the time. Yeah. It's also decently historically accurate. So, mm. I don't know, for what that's worth. And isn't isn't it usually uh, included in, like, the best hundred films of Oh, ever? yeah. It's, yeah. it's I mean, it, it literally changed the game, that movie. Um, almost as much as the Battleship Potemkin. It just blew everything else out of the water. You watch American films from that year... And from the years around that year, yeah. they suck compared to <laughs> sure. what Eisenstein and his group were putting out for the Soviet Union. Hmm. Um, if you want to see something interesting, look up the Kuleshov effect. Find a video. It's just a, okay. it's just a video of a guy looking kind of past the camera. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> you're finishing that. Jesus. It's so good. I know. It's good. It's, it's so good. <laughs> So you've got this guy staring past the camera, right? And it cuts to various things. Like one, it's a bouquet of flowers. You're like, oh, weird. And then two, it's a child. Oh. And then you're like, huh. And then mm -hmm. the third, it's a beautiful woman. And these cuts, just the guy looking with one image, completely changes the message. Anyway, it's uh, it's all interesting propaganda. I'm drunk as fuck. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we we both are. Yeah, we're both drunk. Maybe James is a little more drunk than me. I don't know why, because <laughs> he's bigger than I am. Um, yeah. But. Well, James, that was um, all very, very Russian. Mm -hmm. Shall we head to the service? Yeah, comrade. Oh my God. Your line is with haste. With haste. <laughs> uh, so, James, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Oh, uh, I'm going to become a Russian. How? Um, eat potatoes and die by German gunfire. Oh my god! <laughs> the worst really comes out of you. I know. Um, but wait, my line is perfect. Perfect! <laughs> so what about you? What are you gonna do today? Uh, shoot a man and take his tea. Uh, useful but terrible. Okay, well, first, I'm gonna downlo uh, download. Download. God, download the beer! I'm gonna drink this. Yeah, well, good. Well! I think it's about 
time to bring the podcast to... Uh, oh, fuck. Well, I think it's time to bring an end to the show for today. Please feel free to send all your hate mail to We Talk About Dead People Podcast at gmail.com. We will read all of it and not along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash We Talk About Dead People. Even as little as a dollar, as much as it costs to fund the German, the Soviet offensive. The Soviet offensive <laughs> uh, helps tremendously. Our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of Russia Russia play you out. <laughs> it should just be us being drunk. <laughs> Support us on Patreon, and if you want most more of this shit. <laughs> and if you can't pay or put anything on Patreon, we'd appreciate it if you if just... You <laughs> oh my god! We'd appreciate it if you just share the episode. Yeah. We'll, uh, Same thing. Yeah. We love it. Well, bye. <laughs> the impending worldwide panic could signal the end of this age and Christ's glorious return. With only months before the moment arrives, you must have the information found in this shocking video by Dr. Jack and Rex Sullivanapi, 2000 Time Bomb. To order, call toll-free 1-800-918-5577. We'll send this emergency video for a gift of only $24.95, plus $3 shipping and handling. Have your credit card ready and call 1-800-918-5577. To order by mail, send check or money order for $24.95, plus $3 shipping and handling to Jack Vanapy Ministries, Box 7004, Troy, Michigan, 48007. In Canada, send $29.95, plus $3 shipping and handling to Jack Vanapy Ministries, Box 1717, Postal Station A, Windsor, Ontario, N9A6Y1. Call or write today. Here's Rexella.